0: Welcome to Conference Coverage, presented by ReachMD Radio on XM160 and powered by Health Day, featuring the latest clinical information and research findings from the 52nd Annual Meeting and Exposition of the American Society of Hematology, December 4th through the 7th in Orlando, Florida. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Bernholtz.
1: And I'm Sue Berg. This year's meeting attracted over 21,000 participants. The conference highlighted recent advances in the diagnosis, prevention, and treatment of hematologic disorders, with presentations focusing on understanding the underlying mechanisms of leukemia, lymphoma, and other hematologic malignancies, as well as novel treatment approaches for hematologic disorders such as sickle cell anemia, hemophilia B, and Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome.
0: In one study... Researchers at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and the University of Tennessee Health Science Center developed a novel gene therapy approach for treatment of hemophilia B, which results from a deficiency in clotting factor IX. Investigators said they aimed to replace the factor IX gene using a modified adeno-associated virus as the delivery vector. Previous attempts at hemophilia gene therapy with adeno-associated virus have been unsuccessful, but the researchers modified this vector in several ways to make it more effective for increasing factor IX levels. The novel vector was administered to four patients, two receiving a low dose and the other two an intermediate dose. The patients were then followed for factor 9 expression and potential toxicity, including liver injury. Two patients had detectable levels of factor IX, one in the low group and one in the intermediate group, and no toxicities were found in any of the four patients. Investigators say these early results are encouraging that this approach will be a safe and effective way to treat patients with hemophilia B, but further testing is required. Next in planning is to look at higher vector doses. One or more co-authors disclosed financial relationships with Genzyme, Inc., Third Rock Ventures, Novo Nordisk, and Shire, Inc.
1: In another study, researchers found a marked clinical improvement after stem cell transplantation among patients with Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome, a life-threatening immune disorder characterized by bleeding, secondary to microthrombocytopenia, immunodeficiency, autoimmunity, and susceptibility to lymphoma. In 9 out of 10 patients, a clinical gene therapy protocol was associated with a reconstitution in patients' immune function and stopped bleeding. However, investigators reported one patient did not receive enough stem cells in treatment and failed to improve. Those who did appeared to experience robust immunity. However, more recently, one patient became ill with lymphoblastic leukemia, which the investigators believe was related to stem cell therapy, primarily due to the vector used. The investigators are currently attempting to improve the vector technology to reduce this risk in future trials without losing efficacy. Though the lead author of this study cited risks of adverse events such as lymphoblastic leukemia, he said that overall, this study confirms the markedly robust clinical benefit of stem cell therapy in these patients and may offer hope for people affected by Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome. And researchers at St. Jude's Children's Hospital have identified genetic biomarkers that may indicate whether children with sickle cell anemia are at a higher risk of developing stroke. Five different polymorphisms were identified in four different genes associated with stroke, one that was protective and the other three serving as risk factors for stroke. In addition, the alpha-thalassemia trait was associated with protection against stroke. Investigators hope to expand this list of candidate genes in a genome-wide association study to establish a comprehensive list of biomarkers predicting cerebrovascular disease in sickle cell anemia. Eventually, these genetic modifiers of stroke may be used in concert with existing clinical tests.
0: Researchers in Germany reported that individuals who donate peripheral blood stem cells, or bone marrow, do not appear to be at an overall increased risk of cancer. In a retrospective study, researchers used a follow-up questionnaire to over 15,000 donors to evaluate whether there were any long-term risks of developing cancer following donation of peripheral blood stem cells, or PBSCs, and bone marrow. With over 12,000 responses to the questionnaire, the investigators calculated over 30,000 observation years. They found unrelated PBSC and bone marrow donors did not carry an increased risk of developing cancer compared to the general population and concluded that there was no evidence that PBSC or bone marrow donation might be unsafe. The high number of observation years supports the relevance of these findings. And in a second retrospective study, European researchers compared the benefits of double-unrelated cord blood transplant versus single-cord blood transplant in adults with acute myeloid or lymphoblastic leukemia in remission. It has been previously reported that recipients of double-unrelated cord blood transplantation have a higher incidence of acute graft-versus-host disease, but no difference in leukemia-free survival when compared to single-unit umbilical cord blood transplantation recipients. In this study, at three years... Patients still in first remission who received a double transplant had an unadjusted cumulative relapse incidence of 15%. The relapse rate in those who received a single transplant was higher, at 25%. The rate of leukemia-free survival was 53% in patients who received a double transplant and 39% in those who received a single transplant. However, 45% of those who received a double transplant experienced acute graft-versus-host disease, compared with 27% following a single transplant. Still, the study's lead investigator said these results demonstrate that not only is double-cord blood transplantation feasible, but the procedure is associated with better overall outcomes, especially when used early in treatment.
1: Kinase inhibitor nilotinib may improve survival in some patients with chronic myeloid leukemia, or CML, according to Italian researchers. In a Phase two study, investigators evaluated 73 patients with newly diagnosed Philadelphia chromosome-positive CML who received 400 milligrams of nilotinib twice daily. The investigators found that the complete cytogenetic response rate, or CCGR, was 96% at 12 months. The cumulative CCGR for participants was 100% within 12 months. In addition, overall survival, progression-free survival, and failure-free survival all reached 99%, and event-free survival was 92% after a median follow-up of 36 months. Investigators concluded that the rate of failures was very low during the first three years and that responses remained stable with most patients, achieving optimal outcomes during the first 12 months. A second study found that patients with various types of CML respond well to ponatinib. Despite progress in CML therapy, patients who fail two or more tyrosine kinase inhibitors, as well as patients with T315I mutation, currently have no other treatment options. In this Phase one study, researchers evaluated 67 patients with various refractory hematologic malignancies who received a daily oral dose of ponatinib. Ponatinib was associated with a positive response in patients with various types of CML, including patients with CML in the chronic phase, CML in the chronic phase with T315I mutation, or CML in accelerated or blast phase, or with Philadelphia chromosome-positive CML. In addition, responses were seen in heavily refractory patients with or without mutations who were resistant to currently approved tyrosine kinase inhibitors. If confirmed by a larger study, these results may show ponatinib could be the next step in coming closer to overcoming and possibly preventing the most difficult mechanisms of resistance in CML and ultimately finding a cure.
0: Investigators found that in some lymphoma patients, rituximab may be a better option than watchful waiting. Investigators in the UK randomized about 460 patients with asymptomatic stage 2, three, or four follicular lymphoma to watchful waiting versus rituximab once a week for four weeks with or without maintenance therapy every two months for two years. Three years into the study, the rituximab induction arm of the study was discontinued as the efficacy of this drug as a maintenance therapy was clear. 49% of patients in the watchful waiting arm had not required new therapy compared with 80% of patients in the rituximab induction arm and 91% of patients in the rituximab induction and maintenance arm. Investigators concluded that rituximab seems to significantly delay the need for new therapy. This finding could change the management of patients newly diagnosed with asymptomatic follicular lymphoma. In addition, a new treatment option appears effective for relapsed or refractory Hodgkin's lymphoma. Researchers evaluated the efficacy and safety of brentuximab vedotin in 102 patients with relapsed or refractory Hodgkin's lymphoma who had already undergone an autologous stem cell transplant. Tumor reduction was found in 94% of patients and the objective response rate was 75%. 34% achieved a complete remission and the drug was generally well-tolerated. Investigators say these responses suggest that, if approved by the FDA, Brentuximab vedotin may become an important treatment option for patients with relapsed or refractory Hodgkin's lymphoma. Several authors of these studies disclosed financial relationships with pharmaceutical companies.
1: For patients with venous thromboembolism, or VTE, investigators reported new treatment options which appear promising, and new risk prediction models that may be useful for clinical management of these patients. It has been unknown whether treatment strategies for cancer patients with venous thromboembolism should vary according to patient and malignancy characteristics and whether patients with low risk of VTE recurrence can be identified. Canadian researchers aim to develop a risk prediction system to identify patients with low and high VTE recurrence risk Charts were evaluated for over 500 cancer patients with VTE, followed between the years 2002 and 2004 and 2007 and 2008. Investigators were able to stratify patients with cancer-associated thrombosis into categories of low- or high-risk recurrent VTE. The generalizability of the prediction model has yet to be established, however. Another study looked at whether patients with pulmonary embolism can be treated at home. Patients are initially treated with low molecular weight heparin in the hospital, but the most recent guidelines report some small studies suggesting outpatient treatment is potentially effective and safe in some patients. Researchers in the Netherlands studied the efficacy and safety of an 11-point questionnaire called the Hestia Criteria to determine eligibility for outpatient treatment. The criteria are designed to assess risk, comorbidities, and the need for hospitalization. A yes to any of the 11 questions disqualifies the patient from at home treatment. Investigators identified 297 patients with the HESTIA criteria and treated them on an outpatient basis. VTE recurred in six patients, while two patients experienced major bleeding three patients died in the three months following treatment, which was not attributable to fatal pulmonary embolism. A co-author of the study said in a statement that these results show that the Hestia criteria are efficacious and safe in helping doctors determine which acute pulmonary embolism patients can be safely treated at home.
0: Finally, investigators say that rivaroxaban, an oral factor ten A inhibitor, may provide clinical practitioners with a simple fixed-dose regimen for the short-term and continued treatment of deep vein thrombosis. Nearly 3,500 patients with acute symptomatic deep vein thrombosis were randomized to oral rivaroxaban alone at a dose of 15 mg twice daily for 3 weeks followed by 20 mg once daily or subcutaneous lovinox followed by either warfarin or another vitamin K antagonist, acenocoumarol, for 3, 6, or 12 months. In parallel, the investigators conducted a double-blind, event-driven superiority study randomizing patients who had already completed 6 to 12 months of treatment for venous thromboembolism to 20 mg daily of rivaroxaban alone or placebo for an additional 6 months to a year. The primary outcome was recurrent venous thromboembolism, and rivaroxaban was found to have better efficacy at preventing recurrent VTE compared with the Lovenox and vitamin K antagonist group. Major bleeding or clinically relevant non-major bleeding occurred in about 8% of patients in both groups. In the continued treatment study, patients receiving rivaroxaban experienced 8 VTE events, while those who received placebo experienced 42 events. There was no statistically significant difference in non-fatal major bleeding events between the two groups. The investigators concluded that oral rivaroxaban at a dose of 15 mg twice daily for the first three weeks followed by 20 milligrams once daily thereafter, may provide an effective, safe, single-drug approach to the initial and continued treatment of venous thrombosis. The study was funded by bayer Sharing Pharma and Ortho McNeil. Several authors disclosed financial ties to these and other pharmaceutical companies. Thank you for listening to conference coverage from the 52nd Annual Meeting and Exposition of the American Society of Hematology December 4th through the 7th in Orlando, Florida. Conference coverage is a presentation of ReachMD Radio, broadcast on XM160 and by livestream at ReachMD, and powered by HealthDay.